This morning I wanted to talk about um, the concept of equanimity. In my experience, it's something that um, is one of the fruits of zazen practice. And um, as I, I meet with people in practice discussion, I can feel the mind of equanimity there. And so um, I just wanted to highlight it as a way of, of um, recognizing what's available, what, what, a, what, what, what one of the beautiful gifts of sitting diligently and studying body and mind for the last four days. So uh, the way that I would speak about it, and, and maybe you feel this as well, that we are studying our karma and we're looking at and applying all of this medicine to uh, these arisings in our body and our, and our thoughts. And we are swept away by them, caught in them, and we're also still with them. And uh, no matter how strong they are, or how tenacious they are, space starts to get created around them. And we might not even know it. We might not, we may feel still so connected with uh, the contraction, the tightness, the um, reactivity, but there's space there. And it's, it's like less sticky. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of like, you know, these things come up and they come up in a little bit more of a buoyancy or a space. And I know this is to be the case because sometimes, you know, somebody will come into the room and they'll have this very strong, terrible thing (laughs) that they're presenting. Look at this. Look at this shit. (laughs) And it's terrible. It's miserable. And they're laughing. They're smiling. And where this joyful mind is there with it, right? This is kind of funny. And, and there's pain there. And even in the pain, there's a little bit of a, a tenderness or a lightness or a care. And this is what we do here. We welcome these visitors and we learn how to um, play with them, how to be with them in a way in which we loosen our grip and they loosen their grip. So the equanimity is the, that feeling of, of what patience feels like, what understanding feels like. It's, it's very energetic, actually. And I think sometimes people misunderstand equanimity. They think it's like this evenness, you know. Nothing's bothering them. There's this, like, uh, uh, unaffectedness. It's not my experience of equanimity. And I, I imagine you feel this, too. It's not as if you're less affected by things. You're deeply affected by things. You're sensitized to the subtlest little 
hurt or pain. You can feel it even more so. Or the, the kindness just like pierces through you. <laughs> and you break into tears when someone hands you a, nap, a tissue. You know? <laughs> ah, so, so it's not a dulling. But it is an energetic balancing. <clears throat> because often this karma, these pains, these histories, you know, they have, uh, they have so much hurt in them. And they want us to, they want to be seen, they want to be felt. And when they're felt and seen and cared for, you know, there begins to be some some quieting down. And the way I experience it, I don't know, maybe people have different metaphors or analogies, but there's just, there's like all this space available for it. So I think it's, there's a, you know, that idea of like, there's a, it's like a little drop in this beautiful big ocean. And you might even have the feeling like, wow, that thing really, yesterday, if I saw you yesterday, you would, you would see I was in hell. You know, and now, what was it? <laughs> what was this big, fiery demon? I, it's like shrunk down to this sweet little whatever. And, you know, we practice equanimity, too, even if we don't feel it. We, because of the forms and because of our ethical commitment to be still and to be silent, even if we're, we're absorbed in it, we have these forms that say, that, that um, enact equanimity. So some, again, you know, we can embody these forms in a way in which we repress or we, we uh, fake it, you know. But to me, the forms have held me, you know, that even if I'm, you know, angry with somebody, I bow to them. So I'm, I'm enacting equanimity. I'm holding that energetic balance. Um, and that is, that, is, that is how we do not cause harm. So the forms help us to not cause harm. <clears throat> and the schedule helps with equanimity too because we can get too, um, too averse to something, too excited to something, and it's no big deal. We have to keep moving on. <laughs> it's like the equanimity is a way in which we can just be in this um, relaxed relationship to the flow of life. This kind of next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. We can see it's almost like there's a letting go that just happens. Like we, it's like trying to grab water or grab air. But to me, the most important thing about equanimity or the teaching of equanimity is that it helps release us from the mind of duality. So this is the this bal- energetic balancing means that if we're falling on one side, we recognize we're kind of going this way, and we've just dropped something over here. So uh, some people uh, say that equanimity is the protector of compassion and love. And in our practice, um, we're practicing with the pain of the world, and we're speaking up for justice, and we're naming the harm. 
and we're doing it with the intention of doing it with an undivided heart. Undivided, not divided between bad and good. And in a way, you could say that all the violence in the world is a result of, of that splitting that world. And in this side, you're in, and this side, you're out. You know, and this, what we long for most as human beings is to belong and not have anything exiled. That's a tall order. And I think we need the Sangha, we need everybody, we need all the communities to reflect back to us and remind us when we're dividing ourselves, when we've dropped somebody or something, when we're exiling either parts of ourselves, which we've been talking about, or parts of reality. So nothing, we exile nothing. So on Thursday, when I was speaking, and I think Alex asked me a question about confession. <laughs> and just very reflexively, you know, I, I, I made this comment about um, Catholicism. And I, I kind of flippantly talked about, um, and dismiss, dismissively talked about, you know, the confessional, <laughs> the wooden box. And in that moment, you know, and, and I didn't even realize it until somebody came into practice discussion and so skillfully and so lovingly said, you know, Laura, not every expression of Catholicism or confession is um, a negative one. In that moment, you know, being in the crowd I'm in, <laughs> I didn't have my uh, Irish Catholic family with me in here. <laughs> I might have been more careful. Uh, I could, being in this crowd, so I presume, though I don't know, I could make some comment about Catholicism and make, you know, Catholicism bad, Buddhism good. And there we are, all feeling really good about how good we are as Buddhists. And in that moment, I, I cause harm. Because, you know, even if I'm on that side and we're all together over here, nobody feels safe. Because if I can exile that, I can exile something else. And we all know that. We're listening for that. We're watching for that. Now, that does not mean we do not speak about the harm, the, the harm and the incredible harm that that institution has um, enacted on all sorts of bodies. And um, those in power, you know, Catholic Church, at least in one point in time, wielded a tremendous amount of power, still does, that those in power can keep us from speaking other realities. So it's not as if we don't want to speak to those realities of harm. But, you know, <laughs> I say but, you know, I'm in this training now, this uh, beautiful training, and the teachers say, end, end, not but, end, end. I have to imagine that there are, and know even in my own body, that there are moments that that tradition and those practitioners have also created wholesome karma and have offered um, something very important and very precious. They both exist. 
So we have to take responsibility for our impact, and sometimes we can't even see it, you know? So then I got another lovely little teaching from another person who came in. <laughs> it, the teachings are everywhere, if you're listening. And um, I can't remember exactly how she said it, but she said something like, you know, um, you know, what's your relationship to the male ancestors? <laughs> you know, she, that like pushed me back a little bit, you know, because, um, and it, as a way of me feeling more connected, I have been so um, enamored with the female ancestors, you know, even when I'm chanting, just like, I chant the male eyes, the female ancestors. <laughs> Here we go. Now my devotion is up, you know. I, I, it's like I'm dropping a whole part of, of, of what's been offered to me. You know, I'm, I'm so focused on grandmotherly mind, I forget about grandfatherly mind. So in honor of um, a grandfatherly mind, and as some of you have heard me talk before, uh, I have a real—I've had a real aversion to the to the koans, the the male koans, <laughs> which are these teaching stories, where two teachers come together and um, um, and try to wake each other up through a dialogue. Okay, so basically, this is the case. This is the story, and this is this is an. I think Greg has mentioned this story because this is the story of karma. This is the teaching story about karma. And you know, it's funny because so many people love this story about the fox. I didn't like it. You know, it's like, I don't want to do that. Greg, you tell the story of the fox. But I'm going to tell the story of the fox because now I appreciate this story. So here's, here's the um, situation. Here's the teaching story. When Bai Zhang lectured in the hall, there was always an old man who listened to the teaching and then dispersed into the crowd. One day he didn't leave. Bajan then asked him, who is it standing there? The old man said, in antiquity, in the time of the ancient Buddha Kashapa, I lived on this mountain. A student asked me, does a greatly cultivated man, person, still fall into cause and effect or not? I answered him, he or she does not fall into cause and effect. And I fell into a wild fox body for 500 lives. Now I ask the teacher to please turn a word in my behalf. Bajan said, he is not blind to cause and effect. In another version, it's he does not ignore cause and effect. He does not ignore karma. The old man was greatly enlightened at these words. It always happens like that. Just a few words and you're enlightened. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but those were ancient times. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, so the reason I say that is because, thank you, Doug. Thank you. Um, because it reminds us that We are always operating in the world of karma. We are, we are never, um, we are never outside of living in the world of karma. So at least I know in my own body and mind, 
the more I explore my conditioning, the more realities I open up to about how my personal and my collective conditioning impacts. And I'll tell you a little story about that. You know, it's um, because, you know, when we meet, we meet each other, we're meeting not only our karma, but their karma, and not only their personal karma, their collective karma. So it's like the whole history of my peoples, meeting the whole history of your peoples, and there's all of these hurts and pains and sensitivities and delicacies that we can never know. And so we need to take exquisite care of that, lest we uh, fall into a foxhole for 500 lifetimes. And you know, I, I, I was thinking, you know, this isn't a disparagement against foxes, you know. <laughs> you know maybe it was good to be, in a, be a fox for 500 lifetimes. Maybe the fox was going around getting clever and gathering evidence and, and information and teachings. You know, so who says, you know, fox isn't a better, uh, a better rebirth, you know? But, and in fact, you could say that the fox somehow wound his way up to the, to the Zen teacher and found his way back there. So something was happening in those 500 lifetimes. He wasn't just like, because I used to think he was just like thrown into some terrible place. Like one, one word and you're gone, you're exiled. That's how I read it. I had read it as an exile. I'd read it as punishment. There's my karma. No. But in a way, when we fall into our karma, our, the, 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 the weight of our karma, if we ignore it, you know, one way of ignoring it is believing it. One way of not caring for it, um, what are the words he says not? What, what's the word he said? He doesn't say ignore don't be blind to. He or she's not blind to cause and effect. So during this sashin, in a way, what we're doing is, not in a way, what we're doing is we are, we are, we are putting our glasses on <laughs> and we are looking at that and we, we're doing it collectively so that I could be blind to a piece of my karma and then a lovely person is kind and generous enough to come into the room and say, um, in, a, in a very beautiful, respectful way, like, um, you, you didn't see something there. So you would think that, you know, when we are uh, focused on karma and we understand how harm happens, and, you know, a little bit of the conversation that emerged in our discussions is, you know, the harm of religion you know, the harm of power dynamics, the harm of hierarchy. So you might imagine that one of the responses to that, once we wake up to that, is let's get rid of it. Let's not have hierarchy anymore. And that might be appropriate. How do we get rid of power relationships, you know? But what Greg was speaking to yesterday, which I, was just so, uh, I thought, beautifully spoken, was we transform them. You know, that there's a way that we can work with, work with our offerings here 
you know, um, our teachings and, and transform the karmic way that we embody them into a dharmic way of embodying them? How do they transform into something that's actually um, awake, help us awaken up out of our, our, um, our blindness? And in doing so, we can find a ground that is beyond or not just the karma. So, you know, one thing that is we do in Zen is we have a little bit of hierarchy. We have teacher and student. And this is um, so interesting for me because, you know, um, when I was little, I was so frightened of authority. I was so frightened of all adults, actually, most adults. And um, there was a time, one time I went to visit an uncle of mine. I didn't know him so well. And I was so shy. And I was like eight or nine years old. And I was having this special trip by myself without my sisters to this aunt and uncle that I didn't know so well. And the aunt fed me a lot. And then we went in the car. And I was going, driving home to my house. And I'm sitting politely and quietly in the back seat, as I would do with any adult around. And um, we were about 15 minutes away from the house. And I started to feel really nauseous, like I really wanted to throw up. And I was in this dilemma. I was in so much pain. But some, I was so frightened. Um, to speak up. I couldn't do it. So we're driving, and I'm like, okay, a couple more blocks. I can do it. I can do it. You know? <laughs> um, and my uncle was very sweet. was such a sweet man. And um, I didn't make it. And it was a brand new car. <laughs> and I threw up all over that backseat of that car. And to me, this is like... Um, just, just to give you a taste of the level of fear I had about authority. And he was very kind. He you know, didn't say a word, didn't shame me, humiliate me, nothing. But I was like, wow, I could not speak up even you know, if my life depended on it. So, <clears throat> so uh, all of the roles that I've inhabited since I entered Zen practice have all asked me to learn how to have a voice, learn how to uh, not be a mouse. <laughs> you know? I, I was good at being a mouse. It kept me safe to be a little mouse. But this, there was something that, that uh, longed for something else, knew what the medicine was, found Zen Center, and then all of these people started asking me to do things, you know? <laughs> you can't just sit zazen, you know, it's nice, you can do that for a little while, but sooner or later you're going to be asked to step into some position that is going to bring up your whole history around authority and around stepping in and taking your place. And, you ha- and I had to be, do that with terror, um, with humiliation every time I made a little error, you know, with shyness, you know, and um, 
And I watched that when I was a mouse, when I needed to be a lion or be a, I don't know, like an owl or some other animal, I harmed people when I was a mouse. People didn't need a mouse. They needed to know where to sit down. Or they needed to understand that what they were doing might be harming the whole. We have to uh, let ourselves express on behalf of the whole. So, you know, what happens is I think initially we try to hide within the role. You know, we do what we do. We strategize and sometimes we take the role on and we, you know, I, I could have like, you know, just apologized for everything that I was doing. Or I could have done the opposite, where karmically I could be like, now I'm in charge. <laughs> you do this, you do this, you do this. Um, and again, fall into a foxhole, because every time I am only operating from my karma, I'm missing something. I'm missing the meeting. There's also this other person. What does this person, what does Yoko need? Does she need a, does she need a gentle little mouse? You know, maybe she does. Maybe she's terrified. I have to get small. Does she need a lion roaring back at her? You know, do I need, what do I need back at me? What's skillful? So um, this is how we, we move and move those, make power and service of the wholesome. And you know, we don't do this alone. So, um, we bring our teachers into the room. So when someone walks in the room or I am learning how to embody my teacher role and I have my jisha, I think about how Reb was with me when I was a jisha. What, what did Tia do with me? And I play with that. So we bring, we bring our whole, we don't just bring our karma in the room, we bring all of our relations in the room. We bring all of our wisdom sources in the room. We remember what it was like to be in this role or this role or walk in the door this time. And, and we energetically sense all of that. And we try to do that from a place of equanimity, of including everything and responding to what needs to respond to. So I say all this because, um, you know, we're all, I, we're all sensing this. And... Uh, and you can feel it in the air when people are doing this, when they're operating from care. When we're all together in our silence, and this is why we're silent, because it's easier to hold all of this karma. And when we speak, we can really <laughs> mess things up, you know. But we also have to speak. You know, the, the te- these, these koans, we have to engage to clarify what's going on. And then... We fall into a foxhole, shit, we go over it, and we, 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 uh, we apologize. Or we thank the person. And you know, sometimes this doesn't happen right away. Some things that I did as a student with my teachers, it took me 15 years to see it. And I have had teachers who have come back to me and, and met me in my 
mirroring of them. And it was mixed, you know. My mirroring was both something has to be spoken and I, there's some of my own shit in there. That's okay. <laughs> no. It's not going to be perfect. You know, we're not going to get a perfect equanimity. It's like, I got it all right. Everything's in balance. Power is in balance. We have it all right because impermanence lets us know this is going to fall out of balance in a moment. And if you grab onto it, you're, you're, you're doomed. Back into the foxhole again. We are uh, navigating a field, and we can, we can have joy and have play with that. And then something happens, which is just the most lovely thing, which is we work with this karma, and we play with it, and we take responsibility for it, and we're making sure we're not, you know, we go over here, we go over here, what's balanced, and then all of that drops away. And that's like a moment of grace. And I know you know this experience. So um, we're just like uh, freed up from all of it for a minute. And it all, all the karma parts. And then we're just right here with each other. No teacher, no student. You know. So uh, Stephen Batchelor says, uh, an empty self, a self empty of... Uh, a solidity is a relational self. We're just, we're all our relations all the time. And we all belong. And everything is included. And no, nobody is not our family. And um, easy to practice when we're in silence, when everything is so cared for so beautifully. And then we step out the side of the door. And how do we carry this with us? These, um, these realizations of equanimity and space, of care, of grandmotherly, grandfatherly mind, and joy mind, and spacious mind. Because even if we're not feeling them, we can still enact them. <clears throat> you know, this morning I, I feel like I'm getting a little cold or something, and... Um, and that to me is like one of my, I know now after so many years of practice that when I'm physically feeling a little weak or a little sick, that's when like I can, uh, I am more suspect to going into the foxhole. I feel a little too tender, a little too vulnerable. And one of the ways that I, that I do that, I puff myself up. I get like energized, you know, to try to get through things. Or I want to like, go collapse, you know? But I, I was, I'm committed to being here. I, I couldn't wait to get back into the container, you know? I'm taking care of my body. My jisha's taking care of me. But I also can be very, I could be very careful now because I could go out of balance. And so I have to actually take more care. I have to slow down more. I have to be more careful with my words. I have to be more careful with my energy. So this is what we can do. We can know where we fall into the foxhole. And we can be open to the support that's always there. And a lot of this is wordless. It's, it's what we feel that we don't have words for. So I, I wanted to share one other thing. 
I got a little, um, somebody shared something with me and coming out of a conversation, um, which I just found, and I just want to share this with you because to me this speaks to the, the place beyond words, beyond duality. It's just questions that kind of help us drop into something else. So, um, Emily, thank you for this list. Thank you. Uh, it says that this is a love letter to Tracy Akimi Kato Kiriyama, um, written by Jen Hoffer. And I got it like two minutes before I came in. <clears throat> so these are just um, questions. Uh, I'm not going to share all of them, but I thought they were beautiful. So here are the, here are the questions. Does a voice have to be auditory to be a voice? Where in the body does hearing take place? Which are the questions that cannot be addressed in language? When does distance look like closeness, feel like velvet sunrise cheek to cheek? Where does a body resist without refusal? Where in the body does loving take place? What do we carry with us? And where in the body do we carry it? Might we be permitted a we today? And this is my favorite. How do we make family with someone we do not know? So, so much of what we do here is on this subterranean level, you know, of listening and sensing ourselves, each other, and dropping into something deeper than these, these splits of mind and body, speaking, non-speaking, voicelessness, voice, and, and honoring all of it. So um, I just want to say also that, you know, Greg and I have been in those little boxes for the last pretty much a lot of the last two and a half days. And I'm, I wanted to just deeply appreciate um, all of you for um, dedicatedly creating this field together, returning to the zendo, sitting, 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 with your pain, with your heartbreak, you know, with your tiredness, with your joy. And um, the space is held by all of you. And I also want to appreciate uh, how quiet when I come out the, the, the entryway and the kitchen. We're all on top of each other here, and yet I, f- I sense this silence. The kitchen is exquisitely silent. And in that silence, we get to hear all these things, you know? So we're, we're um, I'm just moved by this community. So we have 
more time to do this together. It's so precious. Um, and we can keep rededicating ourselves. And, and to not come out, you know, stay in. We're in like the heart of it. Don't come out too quick. <laughs> uh, I feel as if I'm never alone on my cushion. So uh, I am with all the beings that arise, the frightened one, the impatient one, the tired one, the sick one. And I can be, I can be wholesome with them and, and be intimate with them, or I can be, uh, create harm. So I, I've actually, um, I actually apologize to myself, you could say. I'm sorry, that was harsh. I'm sorry, you know. Um, I can be, um, I can be encouraging and um, I can, I can, you know, confession is, is kind of like you can even say, oh, it's that noticing, I was just gone, oh my gosh. I, I had an intention to stay here, and I left for 25 minutes <laughs> to go think about something I'm going to do. You know, ah, that's confession. I, I, I'm acknowledging, and I return. And, um, and then you could say uh, also that I am, I'm taking responsibility for for all the harm I've ever caused by um, acknowledging all those beings in the room with me. And I can, I can um, take responsibility for that in a way that feels really uplifting. Holding it. You know, sometimes it might just be, I... I'm sitting there, and then I realize, I feel this little bit of a pain about how I spoke about my father to somebody two days ago. Or, you know, un, or how I was careless with somebody. It comes up to visit me, and I can confess it then and, and hold it then. I can taste it enough to have remorse so I can let it go. And then I confess to all of my teachers and my ancestors, you know. And then, you know, O Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas, concentrate your hearts on me. Come with me. Help me hold all of this. Uh, And like Dogen says in that, Ehe Koso, they all come. There they are all coming in to meet you. It's okay, darling. (laughs) You're human. It's okay. You know, we've all been through this. We all do this. We're all... When, you, you know, sometimes, again, my karmic experience is confession is some kind of like separating oneself out. I'm the bad one over here. As opposed to like, yes, I am a human being with all human beings who have done this and will do that. And um, it feels painful. And I take responsibility for holding all that with all human beings. Because that's how uh, I can be of less harm. And in the Buddhist teachings, there's lots of stuff. You know, the Buddha says, if you do this, this is like 10,000 kalpas of hell. You know, if you, you, know, you go into a foxhole for 30 years, who knows, you know? Um, it's like we, we're the ones who understand what the, the suffering is, and other people are letting us know that. So um, 
I do think that once we are given information about our harm in the world, and we choose to turn away from it, that does feel even more uh, violent and painful because people are trying to wake us up. And they're offering us a gift. And, be, and we refuse to take it up. And I think when we do that, you know, one of the conditions of that or one of the consequences is, is that people are just going to get louder. This planet is screaming at us is screaming at us. There's a lot of pain there. Not from the animals, from the trees, from the species, from the people who have, don't have the resources. I mean, this world is screaming at us. And we ignore it because it causes some inconvenience. And it's overwhelming. I don't know how to do it. But a bodhisattva makes a commitment to listen. This is what she's doing. That's what we're here for. May our intention equally Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.